The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show, by the way. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Michael Lee Woods joining me this morning. Uh, but Brent, uh, you know, I, I was wondering how long it was going to be. You know, we started this whole thing about relabeling genders and all this a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and, and that's been growing. And of course, I've been waiting for this to happen. And yesterday, I actually saw the video. Young man come out has come out and announced that he is now trans-vaccinated. <laughs> he was born unvaccinated, right? But he identifies as vaccinated. So well, he is he yeah. is laying the this is laying the groundwork now for a whole new movement. You can't refute the logic. Exactly. He is now he identifies as vaccinated. He feels vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So he is now identifying. He says, "Look, you can change your gender on, you know, your your ID, your voter registration cards, yeah. you know, anything like this." So I'm now changing my yep. vaccination status for my CDC vaccination card to vaccinated. Very good. So, Lance, yeah. if you feel if you feel vaccinated but are not vaccinated, can you still be yes, trans? Yes, you are trans. If you believe you are vaccinated, even you if you can be trans, you can be trans vaccinated. Gotcha. According this is according to the video. Now, that, I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just. Oh, thank you for yeah, clarifying. You know, yeah, <laughs> I'm still debating over the whole thing about how you're born and what you identify as. You know, I identify as a cucumber. I'm not sure that works that way, but hey, you know, there we go. It's a, that's a different generation. That's not my. That's not my understanding. So I finally, I'm a boomer. I don't understand these things. I finally come out of the closet <laughs> as a broom. I, no, I'm outwardly gray. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is true. So, all right, a couple of things to get into this morning. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, debt limit showdown thing we've got going on. A uh, couple of clarifications here because there's a bunch of articles out this morning. The Washington Post, LA Times, several others like um, CNBC is if we don't raise this debt ceiling um, in the next month, by the end of October, we're going to have 9 million people unemployed and um, you know, the markets are going to crash and, and the economy is going to be devastated. It's going to be just terrible. Slow your roll. The first thing is, is the government has defaulted on its debt in the past, actually several times. And the world did not end. We suspended payments back in the 70s and the payments were made um, when things got straightened out. And look, people know this and governments know this. People that own our debt know this. So this whole idea that we're going to have this massive devastation if we if we have to delay payment for a month or two while we get these things worked out is just a bunch of hyperbole, um, really more so by the media and by Congress to try to force Republicans to vote for this debt ceiling lift. They don't. The Democrats don't need the Republicans at all to lift the debt ceiling. They have they have majority control in the House. They have majority control in the Senate. Um, with the vote of Kamala Harris, of course, because it's a 50-50 split. But they have the power to raise the debt ceiling tomorrow if they choose to do so. The Republicans are standing their ground on this, saying, hey, look, if you want to raise the debt ceiling and do this additional $3.5 trillion of kind of runaway spending, that's fine. Do it. You have the power to do it, but you own it. And that's the thing that the Democrats don't want here. And this is a political battle. This isn't a, a real, you know, a, a, an, an issue of need. Right, that the Republicans have to vote on this because we're going to default on our debt. We can't raise the debt ceiling. Democrats don't need the Republicans to do this at all. Republicans are saying rightly in this case, if you want to do it, do it, but you own it because the elections are coming up in next year, in next November, December, uh, November of 2022, 
and midterms are going to de define the battle for control of the government. And the Republicans don't want any part of this particular asset race because, again, it's a lot of unbridled spending. We're going to push the debt over $30 trillion over the course of just the next couple of years. So again, there's going to be this point of realization that debt does matter. And as we've written about before, and, and Michael and I have talked about this at length, the reason that we don't have strong rates of economic growth can be directly tied back to the debts and deficits and the erosion of productivity, productivity and productive investment in the economy. Mike, your thoughts? Right. No, and I, I, I would add to that. I think the Republicans are thinking a step ahead, and this spending would be inflationary, mm -hmm. depending on how they do it, right? If it's all 10-year infrastructure, maybe not so, but if it's a lot of spending up front, it's very inflationary. And the Republicans a year from now would say, look, we told you so. We didn't want to spend $3.5 trillion. Now you have 5% inflation, a very slow economy. We have stagflation. People are being laid off. This is why we didn't want to vote for that. That's why we didn't want to push it. So they're they're playing. They're all playing games. Oh, yeah. Right. That we all know that all of them, both sides of the aisle will vote to push that debt limit higher on any given notice because they've all come together about, what, 15 times in the last 10 years <laughs> to do this. Under I think, every it's, I think it's honestly more than that, because isn't this about an annual thing? So. <laughs> right. Right. I, I mean, it's they're going to do it. it it's yeah. like warning about things that can't happen because they will do it right. and they will all vote together to do it. Um, but it's just political theater. Yeah, it, it is. And again, you know, look, and, and to your point, this is something that uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has has stated specifically. He says the reason we're not doing this is because the three and a half trillion dollars of spending is very inflationary for the economy is going to hurt the average person. I mean, he actually made that was a statement he made. Right. So to your point. You know, they are thinking down the road here about what's happening. Look, we already have 5.3% CPI. We've already got uh, pr pr producer price indexes running much hotter than that, over 6.5%. Um, that is going to ultimately get passed on to consumers through higher prices anyway. So the inflation is here. The only question is, is, is it transitory and it'll go away in a couple of months? Or is this something that's going to be sticking with us a lot longer? And that's really kind of the battle the Fed's been in as well in terms of you know hiking rates and tapering monetary policy is the question of this is it transitory you wrote an article about this yesterday maybe it's not that transitory right i mean that's what the article kind of dives into it and the headline numbers the numbers that you see on the front page of the business section say it's not so it's transitory right we've seen the monthly numbers starting to come down they're actually at the average of where they were before covid the year the yearly numbers are still high because we're still dealing with those very high inflation rates from prior months. But when you start digging into it, the what we call the breadth, or what's everything doing, not just the price of those big ticket items like houses or cars or things like that. But if you look at the hundreds of items that underlying CPI, a lot of them are still going up in price. And when we go to the store, we're not just looking at the price of houses. Mm -hmm. When we go to a supermarket, we're looking at the price of shampoo and soap and pasta and everything else and milk. And we notice that that in general, we get these, you know, feelings in our head. We, we can't it's not quantitative, but we understand that prices are going up. And I think that's starting to really what it is. I'm, I don't think I know it's weighing on confidence. Yeah. 
Well, well, it is. And again, when you go, and again, I think it's a, that's a great point. Is that you know, intuitively, when we go to the store to shop and or sit on our phones now and shop online, since we do that now too, you know, and you're looking at you know, um, you know, a pound of ground beef or you know, two pounds of chicken or whatever, and all of a sudden you're looking at you know, double digit price tags for you know, chicken or beef. You know, you go, man, that's 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 you know really getting expensive. And then when you go to check out and your grocery bills three, four hundred bucks, whatever it is, you know, right. you, you start to go, man, this is this is high. And and then you even go out. And and I've noticed this more and more is that, you know, when you go out to dinner or whatever, you know, tabs or you know, if you just go to a normal restaurant, you're still, you know, spending almost to feed four, right? You know. Right. very close to a hundred dollars you know to to feed a family of four so i mean it's just you see these prices going up everywhere and i think the average person gets it and this is why people i think people get so upset when you hear you know public officials go well you know inflation isn't really all that high your cpi is only you know two and a half percent or whatever and people are going you're lying <laughs> you know right. look at what i'm paying and and i right. think that's where that anger you know really comes from Right. And that's, you know, going back to the uh, debt cap, that's where the politicians are both have to be careful and, and can both try to use that sentiment that's going on, that that there is a real feeling of stagflation. Yeah. I mean, the stag part hasn't really seeped in, but economic growth is no more eight, nine, 10 percent. The crazy rates of growth we were seeing kind of as the economy was recovering. And now as the economy slows, Everyone's got their fingers crossed because if we get down a one or two percent growth or even less than that mm -hmm. with, you know, called three to five percent headline inflation, forget what forget what we see, yeah. because what we see doesn't matter. What we spend our money on doesn't matter. That's going to cause ripples at the uh, ballot boxes. Yeah. And it's going to honestly cause just a ton of disconcert, discon, um, disconcert, discon. Disconcert. <laughs> right. People are going to be upset. Uh, but we're going to give Mike a new shirt that says Mike Grammar Matters. Not only does Fed Grammar Matters, but Mike's Grammar Matters just, too. Discombobulated. Exactly. That was his Biden moment. Um, so Mike, Mike uh, Britt just handed me a, a, a list here, just as an example, talking about this. This is restaurant supplies, and this is a change between 2021 and 2019. Shortening oil. Up 86.3%. So, you know, when they go, you know, fry French fries, whatever, that's 86% higher. Um, poultry, commodities, 57% higher. Frozen fruit, 34% higher. Beef, pork, value added, 34% um, higher. Shell, uh, uh, eggs in the shell, 34% higher. Pork, 27, 28% higher. And then, of course, the most disappointing one, ice cream, 25% higher. So and th this list goes on. I mean, it's a fairly long list. But, you know, the, the thing that has gone up the least over the last two years is vegetables, potatoes, because nobody eats those anyway. Um, Let's just talk about <laughs> real quick. Let's just look at the shortening. You right. said it was up 86%, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so we look at French fries, right? Let's just say potatoes did not change in price or salt or any of the other things or all the chemicals they put into the, the french fries right yep. if if shortening is 10 percent of the cost and it went up 86 percent that means the price of fries went up 8.6 percent that's right so so you may say okay it's shortening but it's only a, a minor part of the production process it can have a big effect it, absolutely. and that that's what we're seeing right and you know, if, if the fragrance that they put on McDonald's french fries goes up, you're really in trouble. 
That's why they taste so good, because you're eating perfume. Believe it or not, it's a true fact. Be right back after the break with Michael Ebers. We're going to jump over to the Fed. What did the Fed say yesterday? What didn't they say? Why did the markets respond so positively to it? And what is the future outlook here? That's all coming up next right after the break with Fed Fed grammar. <laughs> Michael Leibowitz, don't go away. We're even. Yesterday, of course, the Federal Reserve finished up their two-day September FOMC meeting. And uh, they had their press conference yesterday. And markets, you know, absolutely loved yesterday. It was great. Markets up over 1% for the day. Uh, doesn't really seem to be any concern here um, at this point for markets. Markets are going to look to be up about 25 points at the open for the S&P. So getting some follow-through buying today. Um, Mike, what, do you, what, do you th- what was your takeaway from the meeting? Why did stocks like it so, so much? Forget who knows why stocks like it. They like everything. Um, I think Fed Powell was pretty clear. I'm not so sure the statement the Fed put out was clear, but his speech, his uh, press conference afterwards was pretty clear. And one, one saying in particular, he said something like, it wouldn't take a knockout employment report to get me to taper in November. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's basically saying what he's been, his goal all along has been substantial progress in the employment picture. And what he's telling you is that even if we only get 100, 200,000 new jobs in the uh, the next employment report, that may be enough for the Fed to go. They also changed. They didn't change much at the uh, in the st- the official statement. But what they did change was their characterization characterization of inflation. They said they changed the wording from it has risen to it is elevated. So. We talked about this a week or two ago, Lance. I wrote on this. And if you decompose the Fed and who votes, who has power, who who can, you know, kind of control the voice, it's certainly Jerome Powell, right? And I think what we saw here was that there's a lot of hawks. The hawks want to start taper yesterday. They want to be done by early to mid-2022. They want to start raising rates. And I think what we saw was Powell giving into them a little bit, right? That that recharacterization of inflation is a big thing. They're now telling you it's elevated. It's not near their goal. It's above their, you know, it's not, has nothing to do with the goal anymore. Mm-hmm. It's It's gone past that. And that's, I think, a nod to the Hawks so that they try to keep their voices down, uh, don't dissent. Um, and then his characterization of employment. Sounds like we're just about there. And it's not... The unemployment rate is still well off where it was, but I think what the Fed's looking at and we're all looking at is that the number of job openings is massive. So if those people that are still unemployed want jobs, in theory, they can have jobs. Is that true or not? We don't know. Do they want to come back to the workforce? We don't know. But as far as what the Fed can do to help them, it's very limited. But they didn't come out in the statement and say that we're going to start tapering in November. I think if you put together the statement in the press conference, what they said was, we're probably going to announce a taper schedule in November that will start in November, and we're going to finish tapering by June of 2022. But, and this is, we've been talking about this all week, Lance, these are the caveats, right? If Mm -hmm. something happens, if the stock market were to drop again by another few percent, if Evergrande were to blow up, if, 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 they basically don't want to commit to anything. And they even mentioned something to the effect of even when they start tapering, they can speed it up or slow it down. 
So, so again, uh, so know, I think, and again, that goes to the point is why markets liked it, and and we're probably going to get we'll get a lot more follow through today, is because the the proverbial punch bowl they didn't take it away. They, you know, they said, hey, look, and, and if you're talking about threading a needle, they did a really good job with it. They said, yeah, we're right. going to taper, but just not going to tell you when. We might, we might not, but you know, taper's definitely on the table, and so stocks go, okay, well, that means that 120 billion dollars a month for now is right. still coming in and again there's been so much look we we've written about the 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 meeting everybody's been writing about taper i mean it's been it's been tapered to death in the market um and again we you know markets had already priced that in you know we had a five percent decline here getting it ready for the announcement uh the announcement came kind of in line with expectations uh markets oversold so not surprising you're getting a rally here um, the question is, of course, is just, you know, how far does it go? And and is there other concerns out there? Is, is the debt ceiling really a concern here that we need to be worried about in the markets? Is, you know, what what limits the markets here from going higher? Um, typically, when you have a, a year where we are now and markets are up 15, 20 percent from their the beginning of the year, follow through through the end of the year tends to be very positive. So, Again, it seems like uh, right now there's kind of more aligned for the bulls than the bears at this point, uh, particularly with the Fed kind of really just sitting on their hands right now and saying, ah, we might do it. Right, right. The benefit of that, look, we're in a bull market, right? Mm -hmm. We're in a bullish trend, and you have to go with the trend. And that's what the trend is. The trend is upward. The, you know, where, where we have to start thinking about is what does this potential change in Fed tech mean? And will the Fed be able to just steer it steer right through the storm of taper right the market's concerned about taper i think it made it a little bit clear this week dropping a few percent not you know nothing big nothing unexpected nothing that you know was too concerning uh but i think the market has become so complacent as well that you know we saw some of these technical indicators really showing flashing mm -hmm. very oversold conditions and just and a matter of a couple of, of days which is pretty interesting right. And not, I mean, there were some decent losses, but they weren't huge. Right. Right. And, and, and it's not the, and I think what's important to understand, and it's just sentiment too. It's, you know, what you see on CNBC and what you see <laughs> on Twitter and, and everywhere else. And it's because we've been lulled to sleep in a very quiet, upward grind market. Yeah. Right. So we get shaken out of beds by down half a percent, down a percent. You know, all of a sudden we're down 3% for a week. That's unheard of. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's that those are the things we have to juggle. And then we got the background noise of China's Evergrande uh, problem and whatever p possible contagion can come from that. And the market is look, the market's being driven by Evergrande. Yesterday, they said they were going to make payments to uh, domestic bondholders. Mm -hmm. Today, we're finding out that U.S. bondholders did not get money um, or dollar bondholders did not get money. Uh, Singapore is saying expect an Evergrande default. What does Evergrande mean? Evergrande is not Lehman. Evergrande does not have their finger in every pie like Lehman did. Uh, but Evergrande is a big company and there's many others like it. So uh, there's just a lot of clouds on the horizon and Fed taper, whether it's November or some other time, is another one. And it, look, the market will likely go back up and test new highs, if it, especially if it can get through the 50-day moving average. And, you know, the, we, we just have to 
We can be it. Yeah, we'll be on that train, but we're not going to be complacent about it. (laughs) Yeah, is that the Uh, that's that's me threading the needle. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's and that's the real challenge for investors, Um, you know, for and this is what I was saying at the opening segment today is, is, you know, we've talked about this kind of repeatedly over the last, you know, few weeks in particular, kind of warning about this correctional process. And that it would be between five and 10%. And, you know, we got down to the 5% mark. And the important thing was we said it would feel a lot worse than it actually did. Uh, and it actually was. And and that's really kind of, you saw a lot of that sentiment. I mean, we had clients calling. It was like, oh, my gosh, when's the bleeding going to stop? And it's like, uh, we're down 2% at the time. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, It was a it, paper cut. Exactly. But, you know, it's been so long since you've had a correction. It felt a lot worse. And I think this really goes back to, talking about money management in particular and managing your portfolio, if you didn't like a 5% drawdown, which is completely normal within any given year, you've got too much risk in your portfolio. I mean, you got to really, you should use this rally rather than trying to buy this rally to, to make more money, use this rally to rebalance your risk and to lower your exposure a bit, get it to where, you know, these drawdowns don't, you know, keep you up at night and give you an ulcer. That's, that's not fun. Um, You know, but, at the same time, if you've been really underweight equities and, and are looking for a decent entry point, here's one, right? You've, you've gotten a pullback. We're oversold short term. Uh, typically, the end of the year tends to be positive. Uh, not always, but typically more often than not. So you've got a decent entry point to add some exposure in your portfolio. We get a lot of people that call us up and say, I've been in cash since you know 2008. Can I get in? Well, <laughs> you know, you don't get a lot of entry points, and this one isn't a great one, but it's better than it was three weeks ago. And, you know, that's really the point that Mike and I talk about a lot on the show is about risk management and, you know, not just, you know, trying to buy all time highs, but at least kind of pick your entry spots to improve your odds of, you know, getting money allocated to markets. And also, look, we could be wrong. And if we buy, we have the discipline to sell. You can't get you can't get wed into any view of what's going to happen. So in other words, be ready, be ready. You have to be you. You have to be a trader in this market, and that's what the market is kind of forcing upon people, and a lot of people aren't. Yeah. They're just, I want to go, I want to own everything, and I want to own it all the time. And you can't have that complacency. You really have to be willing to trade the market, be willing to be wrong yeah. on both both ways. Yeah, that's right. And look, and that's, that's just why they call investing risk, right? You're investing in risk right. assets. Risk means that you can be wrong sometimes, but you, know, you can't, you know, just let the risk drive your emotion. You know, the, the problem for most investors and the things that go wrong ultimately are all emotionally based, right? We, we panic when markets go down. We get greedy when markets go up. And we almost have to do the opposite. Whatever our, our, our emotions are telling us, do the opposite. <laughs> and you, you're probably going to, you'll probably wind up more often than not, right. you're probably going to wind up being better off. Uh, when we come back from the break, a couple other things to get into this morning. We'll talk a little bit about the bond market as well, because um, the yield curve is flattening. And part of this does have to do with the debt ceiling debate that's going on here. But again, one of the things that we continue to look at as an important indicator of where we are is the yield curve itself. Um, that's been flattening a lot lately. And again, you know, while there's been a lot of talk about, oh, interest rates have to go up because of inflation, they're not. Why? We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. Don't go away. Got a question on YouTube that actually feeds right into our discussion about, you know, why interest rates aren't going up here. The question was simply is like, how does hiking interest rates affect 
inflation where there's too much money and not enough stuff, right? Because of supply chain shortages. And, you know, it's a good question because that is one of the, the potential problems that the Fed has gotten themselves into is that they believe they can actually affect inflation through monetary policy and they can actually control employment through monetary policy. And really, if we go back in history and look at it, their their actions are exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. <laughs> and, right. and this is kind of repeated throughout history. They cause the bubbles and the bust repeatedly. And this this isn't just since 2000. This goes back to 1980. We can track, you know, every time the Fed starts hiking rates, they caused the Orange County problem where we had savings and loans crisis. We had, um, you know, long-term capital management. You know, it's it's been almost every single time that they are in there kind of messing with monetary policy, they either create an asset bubble, which leads to ultimately a problem when they start hiking rates. And this this will likely be the case that we get into, you know, down the road when they start trying to hike rates again. We'll find out where the the insolvency actually is. But it's a good question here. Um, In theory, if I hike interest rates, I raise borrowing costs that makes money more expensive. And then we get less consumption of the money, which leads to slower economic growth, which brings down inflation. That's the theory. Uh, It's all supply, demand, Keynesian economics question is is that it really doesn't always work that way and there there is this issue of of the fact that there's too much money chasing too few assets but that's a bit of misnomer because that too much money problem belongs to the top 10 percent of the economy not the bottom 90 percent which will be affected by higher rates right right and the reason you said textbook is because it is a true statement that the price of money affects the supply the demand for goods for consumption but over the last 30 or 40 years, what we've been doing is borrowing, borrowing, borrowing. So we already owe too much money. So when they lower interest rates to 0%, who cares? Who's who's going to refinance their mortgage again? We all have 2 to 3% mortgages. <laughs> right. Who's going to buy a car? In car, auto, car, car lending rates are still near 0%. So the added benefit of lower rates is having very little effect, the marginal benefit of what the Fed is doing when they lower rates. And that's why in textbook, none of this works. Then, you know, Lance made a comment, well, if they raise rates, you know, if, if car rates go to three or 4%, if mortgages go to 5%, people are going to stop buying houses and cars. But before you get to a 5% mortgage, you have to get to a three and a half or 4% mortgage. Mm-hmm. And you could say night, night to the whole real estate market. Right. <laughs> at which point the Fed says, we screwed up. We raised rates too much. Mm-hmm. Right. The stock market falls out of bed. The housing market falls out of bed. People get laid off. We got to lower rates again. We got to incent people. But the in- incentive is just so much less than it was, you know, in 1980. If you would have lowered mortgage rates from 8 percent, 9 percent where they were to 4 percent, you could have blown up a housing bubble of unbelievable proportions. Right. Right. And, but but now. What are you going to do? Lower mortgage rates from three to two and a half? It's just you're not having the same benefit. Yeah, and I, I know Mike's young, a lot younger than Brent and I are, but, but uh, he wasn't probably buying a house in 1990 when I was. But interest rates then were 10 percent on oh, a house. It was so much fun. <laughs> My first one was eight percent. Yeah. So yeah, but, but yeah, that's that, that's the point. And and back then, it was like you had to have 20 percent down to buy the house. There was no this second mortgage thing to take care of the 20 percent to get out of PMI and all that nonsense, right? You actually had to qualify to buy the house and be financially solvent to own it. And guess what? 
housing prices rose at about 3% on average a year, well within the context of inflation, um, about where they should be, not these booms and bust cycles that we've been in now since really 2000, more, more importantly than anything else. Um, after the Fed really started this whole idea that everybody should own a home, let's do adjustable rate mortgages, and you know, and this is, and let's keep, and, you know, interest rates exceptionally low because everybody needs to own a house. No, everybody doesn't need to buy a house. In fact, a lot of people need to rent. <laughs> That's right. well, you know, financially they need to rent. They don't need the obligation of of the mortgage payment, the insurance, the homeowners association dues, the maintenance, the upkeep, all the other stuff that they really can't afford. And this is why we well, keep getting ourselves in these problems. Right. And here's the bigger problem. The whole economy is predicated on debt. That's just one example. Right. But the whole economy is not driven as much of a, as it should be by productivity. And there's not much demographic growth. So what the Fed has done is said, you know what? We're just going to just buy growth. Right. We're going to tell people to borrow. We're going to tell corporations to borrow. We're going to enable the government to borrow. And that creates growth. But it's growth that can't pay off itself. So what do you do? You do more and more. And the only way to incent more growth is at this point to lower interest rates. Right. But we're at zero, right? Well, the Fed's running out of tools. Yeah, and that's right. And, you know, the, and the problem with pulling forward consumption, which is what you're talking about, is that that has right. a longer-term problem with it because you drag forward consumption from next year. So instead of I was, I was going to buy a car next year, I'm going to buy it this year. Um, so I'll drag that forward. Well, next year you've got a hole that you've got to fill, so you've got to drag – you know, production and, and purchases from the next year out. And that hole keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this goes to the whole point that I was bringing up. And this is why interest rates don't rise, despite the fact you get lots of people. And look, since 2013, we've had Bill Gross, Jeff Gunlack, a variety of others come out and say, oh, interest rates are going to be 4%, 5%, and the economy is growing at 2 And we're over here going, no, they're not going to go up because the economy is growing at 2%. You can't afford rates to be growing faster than the economy you won't have any economic growth you'll have a recession and that's been exactly the right yeah exactly and that's been the right case uh so far but and and look even here we've got five and a half percent inflation you should have theoretically four percent rates with five percent inflation but interest rates are at one point seven three what is it what is it today 1.3 10 years 10 yeah. years like one three one two yeah uh that's you know that's telling you the problem here. Rates can't go up because, despite inflation or economic growth, etc., if rates go up, as you said, it's night night Gracie for everything. Right, right. The whole economy is pred, and it's not just our economy; it's the global economy, right? And, and so much of the global economy uses dollars; they borrow in dollars, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned it early. Evergrande did not make its payments on dollar-denominated debt. Right. Right. So everyone needs dollars. That that's that's an important concept. Everyone needs dollars. And how do you get dollars? You borrow them. Right. So that's that that has a huge effect on the supply and demand for money. And you're right, Lance. If we get interest rates that are not even high, <laughs> you know, like Two. people like when you we do this a lot when we're looking at technicals, where we will say something like the tenure could go to two fifty. At which point, then we got to be careful. And Lance and I look at each other and we scratch our head and we say, at 250, it's gone. It's broken. The yeah. Fed can't let it get to 250, right? So, you know, technical analysis, fundamental analysis can only go so far. At some point, it's just common sense that the Fed and the government have big troubles if 
if markets go to where they want to go. So right, the, and the same holds true for the stock market. Yeah, but so this so this is the trap though, and we've written about this in the past and talked about it. And this is the trap the Fed's in, and this is the same trap Japan is in, right? Which is now you've gone down this path, and you've been doing unprecedented amounts of QE for twelve years now, um, and now you're trying to talk about take away the punch bowl. And every time you try to taper off QE, bad things happen. <laughs> we saw that in 2018, right? Um, and it didn't take long. It took a 20% decline. The Fed's like, okay, we're back. We're lowering rates, and now we're going to start doing QE. But things were breaking. Um, when they started tapering you know, uh, QE back in 2018 and hiking rates, they barely hiked rates at all. And by 2019, they're having to bail out overnight repo because all kinds of stuff is breaking behind the scenes that we really don't even know about. We just know that repo was doing something crazy back in August of 2019. So they, and really this started earlier than that. In June and July, they were dropping rates markedly back to zero. And then in September of 2019, they're back in bailing out uh, through a, a kind of a version of QE, bailing out repo. But there was something breaking in the system and, and financial institutions were at risk of something going horribly wrong. And they had barely raised rates. They had barely right. tapered. So how do you how do you even talk about hiking rates and tapering a balance sheet when every time you make small changes you have big ripple effects through the financial uh, community? Right, and this is I think why we spend so much time on inflation, because inflation is the one thing that that puts the Fed in an awful position. If you get enough inflation, how do you get rid of inflation? You raise rates, mm -hmm. right? You stop doing QE, and that's. That's why inflation really matters. And that's why we pay so much attention to it. And the transitory inflation is great, right? We can have it for another six months. At some point, transitory is not so transitory. It becomes lasting. It becomes enduring. It becomes embedded in our minds. And that's the trap. That's the potential end of the trap. That's where the Fed has to, you know, they don't have many choices at that point. Right. And that's. A concern, it's not, we don't necessarily trade off it today, right? but it's just one of those things we keep in mind. Yeah, well, I think it's something you got to look at with China, too. Let's go back to Evergrande real quick, right? So uh, they're announcing this morning that the chairman is going to ensure home deliveries. They're going to make sure that their wealth products get delivered on and they get redeemed properly. But the one thing that we're watching is China standing in the background going, you know what? We know we have a housing bubble. They're kind of letting this work through the system in a controlled manner to try to reduce right. that bubble sum. This is the point the Fed has failed to understand is that at some point you're going to have to let the asset market deflate and you're going to have to try to control the bust um, when it occurs because that's the biggest problem you have to, to affect any other type of monetary policy. Right. All right, got to wrap up the show today. We appreciate you, Mike uh, uh, Leibowitz, as always. His article out on inflation yesterday is on the website right now. Simply go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on that link. Our daily commentary is also published now. Just click on the daily market commentary. Sign up for free email delivery. We have it to you by 730 every morning before the bell. Get you ready for the day. What to be looking for. Lots of earnings coming out today. Those are all listed in our daily market commentary on our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Questions, comments, let us know how we can help you. See you tomorrow. Bye. It's a rich man's world.